Hello and welcome to The Mariner with me, Chris Stanmore Major. Now, we're going to be continuing on today with this RYA Sea Survival Handbook that we began a little while back. Now, in terms of the podcast, it was but a few episodes ago, uh, I think it was episode 68, that we began looking at this fantastic book uh, by Keith Colwell, which uh, goes alongside the RYA Sea Survival course. Um, it's taken a little while to get from episode 68 to here. I will endeavour to make things a little bit quicker going into the near future. The chapter that I've got up to is chapter six. And uh, coming in to start recording this today, I was pretty uh, interested to see that this chapter is called Find the Will to Survive. <laughs> now, uh, I guess this is kind of where the rubber meets the road with the offshore sailing. If you get into a difficult situation at sea on a boat, it really doesn't matter anything else about you at all it's the the one great redeeming element of all this is that uh, it strikes without uh, any care whatsoever as to how you're feeling uh, who you are where you're from what you've amassed in your life or anything else it's just you and the ocean and you can very quickly get into a situation which is so close to the edge of life that um, just thinking in the wrong way might tip you over the edge into uh, oblivion uh, find the will to survive is the content of this RYA Sea Survival Handbooks chapter because in the end you could get into a situation where those who can find the will to survive um, survive and those who can't don't. So it's kind of a useful thing to learn as it's obviously a major intersection in the decision tree for uh, getting out of a tight spot at sea. Let's have a see how it starts. It says, uh, the greatest factor in any survival situation is the positive mental attitude of the would-be survivor. Some call it the will to survive. Oh, this is great. Look, you should probably go and get um, some snacks and uh, something warm to drink because I think this is going to be a pretty interesting one. And whilst you're doing that, I'll try and convince folks to have a look at Patreon and consider supporting the podcast. Now, if you haven't already, please consider checking out some of the other Mariner content. You've got the companion podcast called The Mariner's Library. It's available everywhere that you pick up a podcast normally. Uh, that's me reading old logbooks, essentially, sailing stories, but uh, factual things, not fiction, uh, which I think have got interesting lessons to teach. Currently, I'm reading the book The Romantic Challenge by Sir Francis Chichester, which is the story of his attempt to take uh, a speed record in 1972 on his boat, Gypsy Moth 5. Um, he didn't really hit what he was expecting to do, which was 200 miles per day for five continuous days, but he was damn close, and it's a good read, and it's a view into the world of a fantastic navigator. Um, he was flying small planes literally around the world before he even got into sailing, so it's great to hear the story from the inside. And then over on YouTube... I've just published episode 18. I'm on this 40-foot trimaran going up from Antigua to Boston and I've stopped off in Bermuda because I've had issues with the solar charging on the boat and the autopilot, a few other things. Stopped off to do some quick repairs. Um, most of it is just kind of what you'd expect alongside the dock and I do a little bit where I show how to do whippings in the end of lines from a kind of head cam and a narration point of view so there's some interesting like hands-on skills and at the end you can witness me stuffing the boat into the dock and badly damaging it which is leads on to the content we're going to share in the next couple of weeks and me fixing the boat in Bermuda before continuing to sail it to Boston so that's episode 18 of the Mariner uh, the title of it is you're never too experienced to F up. So uh, go and check that out on YouTube. 
And now let's get on with Keith Colwell's fantastic Sea Survival Handbook. We're on chapter six and we're about to dive into Find the Will to Survive. Okay, continuing here, he says, there are numerous examples where sheer determination not to be beaten, to keep going despite the odds has made the difference between life and death. The belief that no matter how bad the situation you will pull through has to be emphasized to every casualty. A life raft or semi-submerged boat is no place for negative thinking. Man, we watch so much stuff on social media now and YouTube and everything else that it's streaming into our eyeballs as we were talking about last week with eyes for information. Um, When you actually get down to a story like this where it's like literally you have to think yourself to into positivity to survive it it sort of cuts through all of that jangling trash of like meaningless nonsense which a lot of it is like filters on instagram and youtube shorts that have you two o'clock in the morning swiping uh just doom scrolling never ever to finish uh the 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 stream which is uh, youtube shorts all of this stuff ends up seeming so insignificant alongside the sheer reality of being in a boat in the open ocean something's gone terribly wrong and you're at the point where you just have to will yourself to survive however it is 100% true and anybody that knows me knows that you're just I'm absolutely dying to incorporate the fact here that I used to work for bound <laughs> like it's pretty much that's the whole story right so in the 1940s when there was lots of young men and it was young men out in the middle of the Atlantic Um, dying in terrible circumstances uh, on these ships that had been torpedoed in the North Atlantic. They were dying in in ways that you don't really want to consider. You know, they were normal people like you and I, and uh, they got uh, conscripted in some circumstances or volunteered to go and do this thing for the country. And they put their lives into situations where they ended, you know, on on fire in the ocean, in the freezing ocean. It's not good. And the reality of their situation started to really hit home when numbers started to show that it was mostly the young who were dying. You know, some of them were 16, 17, 18 out there, while others were experienced seamen. And the difference when you got into the lifeboat, you'd think that the younger frame would be more likely to survive in what is a very difficult physical situation, that it would be able to stand up to the rigor better and therefore that person would survive. Well, the complete opposite was shown. The stronger bodied young men died at a much higher rate than the older, more experienced seafarers. So the high ups in the British merchant and military navies realized that they were going to have to provide some kind of training for young seafarers so that they could um, look to them surviving the difficult circumstances they were quite likely to be exposed to. So for the merchant service, that started with a course called Outward Bound. The Outward Bound course, otherwise known as the Drown Proofing course, was done in Abergavenny in Wales, and it was run by a guy called Kurt Hahn, who was a German educationalist who had escaped the startings of the Nazi party in Germany, come to the UK, and he was the headmaster of Gordonston, um, the the school that the royals go to. And uh, as such, he was very aware of the um, need for 
young men in particular was his focus for young men to um, experience something between 16 and 25 that was like a rite of passage that pushed them emotionally, pushed them physically and pushed them spiritually. And I mean that not in terms of religion, but in terms of that feeling of oneness with the universe and universal energy, whatever that is that we all experience at some level. These are the things that you are required to tap into when the instructions from the RYA handbook here are, um, you know, a life raft or semi-submerged boat is no place for negative thinking. Um, your idea of religion, <laughs> which sits on a dusty shelf like, yeah, I must revisit that. What do I actually believe? Suddenly that needs to be unpacked rather quickly um, and decide what exactly it is you believe and who exactly it is you're asking for help. Um, so the Outward Bound course was over a month and young young men coming into the uh, the course would have no swimming skills whatsoever. A lot of them, they're from inner city parts of the UK. Um, physically, they might probably score pretty well by today's standards, but at the time they would be considered, you know, a lot less useful physically than a full-grown man of 21, 23, 25, whatever. So they were sort of looking to toughen them up, toughen up their attitude, get them working in groups and communicating, um, get those who could into leadership roles, understanding what that means, the importance of delegation and the way of setting up structures so that one can survive a difficult situation. You need to have the spiritual or personal or, or whatever it is outlook that's going to get you through. But you also have the skill set to put things into motion to actually stabilize a situation. So the two pronged attack, which they were creating, started to have a very, very positive effect on what was going on at sea. Two pronged in that they were doing all of these things to physically toughen them up and spiritually toughen them up, everything which is the Outward Bound course that survives to today. But also it was otherwise known as the Drown Proofing course because every day they would go treading water in the river um, and they would be doing that in cotton pants and woolen jumpers with boots around their neck. And they would learn to tread water longer and longer and longer, developing a hard skill, which is still a huge aspect of Outward Bound today to take people kayaking or climbing or sailing or whatever it is so that they can experience the, the, the thrill of the hard skill and the, the frontiers that it poses. But also on this situation, the reality that that hard skill is transferred directly to the afterward, uh, to the situation of being, you know, torpedoed and being in freezing Atlantic Ocean water fully dressed. Um, by the end of the course, the final challenge was to be taken upriver and then when the tide would come in, it would slowly come up round their necks as they stood on a sandbank in the middle of the river and then when their feet left the bottom, the river would start flowing them out back down towards the centre at Abergavenny, which uh, was, was closer to the, uh, the, the sea and they would sweep in and swim to the side having tread water then for for I think it's over an hour was it longer than that I think it was over an hour but um the point being that it was very real experience to be in the river and the water coming up and then having to tread water and everything else and so um this entire package outward bound as a uh, outward bound international the specific company not just as a synonym for outdoor schools outward bound was where I <laughs> volunteered to go and work at 18. So that um, big experience that you have at uh, 18 where you uh, explore the world for the first time and you're becoming an adult and all those things was thrown onto the uh, magnifying glass of working for Outward Bound and all of the cool things that came from doing expeditions for them. So when we get into a discussion of um, how important is it to um, build some kind of uh, 
team morale, uh, some independent personal kind of strength of uh, purpose. Um, my background is that I spent six years doing it professionally for Outward Bound, where it was a specific a desired outcome of the courses that we uh, ran that people had a perception of danger which um, allowed them to experience some pretty high pressure situations um, that they wouldn't otherwise be exposed to. Um, the reality is that you're increasing the perceived danger and lowering the actual danger and um, for us working in Hong Kong it was particularly easy because the outdoor aspirations of the Hong Kong Chinese are limited and so just going out and sleeping under the stars on an island is a, a very very nerve-wracking experience for them and um, you could create the dynamics which would only ex you'd experience that in a much more stressful situation um, with those who obviously would take camping in their stride but if you've never been out of a city your entire you know 30 or 40 years and suddenly you're on an island in the middle of nowhere in the bush of Hong Kong, you can suddenly start to exhibit some uh, <laughs> very interesting aspects of your personality. And then we can learn how to develop those into decent teams, good leaders, all the rest of it. So um, this is something I've got a lot of experience in after Outward Bound, then running teams of people on super yachts, on race boats. And then of course, in a, in a personal way, doing it when I've done things solo and, uh, and hundreds of thousands of miles of open ocean sailing, uh, leading people uh, into situations which for them are very, very nerve-wracking and uh, and uh, you get to see who's uh, okay with themselves and who's not. It, it comes out very, very clearly. So let's continue down the page here. My God, we're only like a couple of pages into it. Anybody, I say, who knows me and would uh, recognize the title of this chapter probably settling themselves in with a, uh, a, a duvet and some slippers because uh, they know I'm going to be able to chat about this forever. But um I'll try and keep it skipping along so it's not too not too slow for you. Um, continuing down here in chapter six, obviously a will to survive is not enough on its own. Training, preparation and a good understanding of the factors that will affect your survival will bolster that belief. Positive leadership will also improve a crew's chances of survival. Um, I guess to, to that I would say absolutely. Um, positive leadership will also improve a crew's chances of survival. Positive leadership... That doesn't say that you know all the answers and it doesn't say that um, everything that you're telling the crew at that moment is exactly what's going on or what's going on in your head. Um, positive leadership might be that you keep your mouth shut while all the numbskulls running around in your head are screaming with their knickers on their heads um, because you have no idea how to solve the situation in front of you. But you just keep the, your eyes, you know, that dead blank of a cow chewing the cud never show any emotion out at all whilst you just get things a little bit quieted down in your head so you can answer basic questions sometimes positive leadership is saying look we need to have a solution here i've got part of it i'm sure you guys have got a part of it this is what i think and even if it's completely wrong you give some idea of what it is that's going on and then when they start to give you feedback you start to amass the correct answer from the bell curve of the crew's opinions the Point being, though, that you don't show them you have no idea. You don't give in to the the the, the forlorn kind of uh, darkness of, of I don't know what's going to happen. You just you keep it positive. You keep it moving forward and you can have that skill set and actually not know that much about sailing. You could have somebody that leads through a sailing dilemma um, by just facilitating everything that the crew themselves do. So sometimes you have to lead uh, in a technical fashion and sometimes you have to lead uh 
positively and in in the edges of a survival situation when you're like in a life raft you're probably beyond your like technical ability to lead so you better just be very good at the uh, the, the part where you keep other people bolstered up um, it says beware that tiredness cold seasickness and injury add to demoralizing a crew and that the loss or death of a crew member can have devastating effects on the survivor's will to live Dealing with people who have died on boats at sea is very problematic. Um, we could have a little delve into here things that have happened on uh, the Clipper offshore races. Um, when I worked for Clipper, we were told that in the event of somebody passing away at sea, we would unfasten the bolts on the uh, collision bulkhead and the forward portion of the vessel. Those bulkheads have to be 10% of the waterline of the vessel back from the bow. So you can imagine in a 68-foot boat from the prow to a point 10% back is a, a pretty good space. Although it's kind of like wedge-shaped, like the inside of the prow would be, it's a pretty good volume. So that is sealed off with a, a door which has like 26 big, big nuts on it. And um, we were to take all of the nuts off and then um, body bag the person quite a few per times, you know, so multiple uh, uh, layers of body bags, and then put them in there and then... Con sail or continue sailing but sail to the closest place that they could be taken off the boat and we discussed the fact that um maybe a a, a, a ship or something might have like a, a big refrigeration opportunity and they would take off the corpse in that situation like we talked about it a lot and then the reality is like we didn't experience anything like that on my race thank goodness and uh subsequent races but then a number of years later um I, I would struggle now to imagine how many it was i think it was five years later there was the first uh, fatality in the clipper race and they did not engage that uh, emergency crash bulkhead corpse storage solution and instead had burials at sea and uh, that put a lot of kind of um, questions into the sailing world at the time uh, I don't know personally as a skipper on board a boat at sea in that situation quite how I would bounce because the pressure on the crew the emotional pressure on the crew knowing that there was a body like in the boat that's basically impossible but then also the anguish of having gone through putting their comrade over the side of the boat is equally impossible to imagine. It, it's very hard for me to imagine exactly what went on in that crew, in that dynamic, because the reality with something like the Clipper race is that although people are engaged in a honest-to-God race across the oceans, they are not honest-to-God sailors in that they haven't got tens of thousands if not hundreds of thousands of miles experience which would normally come with being in that situation so I have complete respect for the Clipper race I was a Clipper skipper myself I think it's a fantastic organization but it does end up creating a situation where you have people who are in a situation where they are way more over their head than they actually realize and the whole thing that Clipper is doing, like Outward Bound, is lowering actual danger whilst increasing perceived danger. Obviously, they're doing it within the uh, the MCA regulations, so it's very clear what uh, making it safer is. It's not like they're doing something else 
but they are construing the race and the way that it goes around the world and the size of the boats and the loads on things. It's all within a certain specification that can be handled by people who haven't done sailing before. Clearly, uh, a Clipper 70 is not a Volvo 70, but you can end up in the same kinds of situations that require the kind of experience that would come with decades being at sea and it can come really suddenly to a crew who are in no way ready to deal with that because they haven't got that experience before does that make sense so you've got like this situation where you've you've got a formula one car that's in a in a spin and suddenly you're like teleported in there from your normal everyday driving you just don't have the skill set to deal with that that quickly there's no way that you possibly could if you've worked on a fishing boat for years and years and years you might have seen someone get you know, knocked over or knocked on the head or the hand caught in something or someone die or someone get washed over the side. You can imagine all that over decades of uh, experience on a fishing boat for sure. If you have done two or three weeks of training with Clipper and then you're suddenly out on a race, that could be for you six weeks since the beginning of your sailing career. And now you're in a situation where someone has gone over the side of the boat at sea and you've tried to recover them. And then their their dead body is on board the boat. Like this is very, very hard on people's souls. And uh, without that kind of experience to, to cushion them from the reality, um, it is absolutely critical that the person in charge or somebody takes responsibility for like where is this going psychologically because um you could end up in a very dark place you know it's it's very easy to kill yourself on a boat if you don't want to be on the boat you know you just stop being on the boat right so um the the requirement on a skipper to act uh, positively to provide leadership might extend to having to provide leadership in today's world might extend to providing leadership to people who are experiencing this situation of death for the first time of great uh an an immediate emergency around them for the first time difficult conditions on a boat for the first time being at sea for almost the first time like can you imagine you could leave somebody with ptsd from this so so easily so um yeah, let's continue. We haven't, oh my God, we haven't got down the first page yet. Um, some psychologists are now also looking at the will to survive aspect of survival from the opposite perspective and are now investigating why so many people become demoralized so quickly, give up and apparently will them will themselves to die. Good Lord. Good Lord. What would it take to want to be in a situation where you will yourself to die? Oh, my goodness. OK, um. That's, you know, we can unpack that to the end of the world, can we? So they're, it's kind of like the placebo effect, right? When, when we're trying to cut out the placebo effect from clinical trials, we have to do it double blind, which means that the person who's receiving the tablet, let's say, the person receiving the tablet doesn't know if it's the real drug or not. And the person providing the tablet doesn't know whether it's the real tablet or not so that it's double blind because even looking into the eyes of the person and thinking that you get the kind of nod and the wink from them that this is the one that you're going to be the person that gets better just that alone might skew the results of like how the drug's efficacy is recorded like so we have to double blind things to try and negate um the placebo effect like good lord it was galileo that that really 
is the origination of the, the stripping of religion and consciousness from science. And it's absolutely important that that's happened. It's allowed us to express forward in such a, an interesting uh, manner. But the reality is that um, when you're at a point where you're having to do double blind experiments so that someone doesn't think they see something so that they then just make themselves better by willpower, it's like, yeah, you maybe we want to investigate willpower here. So these guys are investigating um, how people can just take that turn and suddenly be on a downward spiral. Um, let's uh, let's think about a couple of things here. All right. So firstly, have you ever dealt with anybody who's um, gone into anaphylactic shock? Um, I actually have gone into anaphylactic shock myself quite a few times. I was allergic to the cold when I was younger. It's called um, cold urtica. And uh, whilst you might get like a rash and prickles from like prickly heat, some people might get a rash from salt. I got a rash from the cold. Essentially, as my body releases chemicals that constrict my uh, capillaries and cause that shell core shunt, those chemicals somehow my body was having an uh, an allergic reaction to it, a very strong allergic reaction to it, which led over the period of about six or seven years that I had it, which I do understand is meant to be seen as like a natural rhythm for these things. But over the six or seven years, I there was times I was unconscious. There were times of crippling headaches, times I lost control of my bladder and bowels, uh, times I've been completely unconscious, times I've been blind. And, you know, there's multiple different occasions where... I would be very, very severely affected by the uh, by the uh, histamine reaction that I was experiencing, and obviously doctors were very interested to uh, talk to me about it and all the rest of it. But um, it was something which was petrifying for me, learning to go out onto the ocean as a seafarer, um, because the the worry was if you go into cold water, what would happen then? Well, this kind of is the foundation for a lot of this work I've been doing on cold water and uh, cold weather survival, and looking at the fact that. Um, for me, just expecting that situation, like of going into the cold, gives me like the psychological flashback to the other thing that happens when you have a very strong histamine reaction. One of the key um, symptoms for people that are going into anaphylactic shock, you, you watch too much Hollywood and you think it's them grasping their throat and coughing and going red and all the rest of it. And they're about to close up their airways. But the reality that I've experienced and that I've heard from other uh, first responders is that oftentimes one of the earliest indicators of a strong anaphylactic reaction um, beginning is actually sense of doom, a psychological shift where chemicals in the brain, very different kind of chemicals, start to fire and the person has a really bad feeling like something awful is going to happen. Like... I don't know what, you know, you've just waved goodbye to your wife and kids and they're off driving down the road and you realize that you haven't tied up the lug nuts on their wheels after you changed the brakes. Like something like that, that feeling of like, oh my God, the I left the gas on and I left my three-year-old in toddler in the kitchen. It's like that, that kind of level of like, oh my God, that is what suddenly washes over people when they go into the uh, start point of, a, of an anaphylactic reaction, whether it goes to their airway or for me, it would like be swelling at the joints and puffiness all over and all this kind of stuff. That sense of doom is an interesting uh, little metric because it's caused absolutely definitely by a chemical change in the brain. The fact is that if you're in a life raft and you're like, oh my God, this is the end of the world, then you're going to be thinking this is the situation. This is what's going on around me. <clears throat> and I'm having a, a natural, normal human reaction to this. And I don't know if I'm going to be able to get through. And isn't it bad? 
A different way of looking at it is that it's purely to do with chemicals being released in the brain. Let's, you know, we can do an experiment. You're in a life raft and uh, it's pretty awful. Yeah, it's cold, it's wet, it's moving around all over the place. The wind's howling, there's other people in there with you, there's vomit, it's awful. It'd be very easy to think, this is a very bad situation from which I cannot come back. I don't know if we're going to get through this. This is a situation where very quickly this top of this life raft could rip off and a big wave comes and we're all separated and within 20 minutes I'm going to die. Like, that's an easy thing to imagine thinking in that situation, right? Let's imagine now that we gave everybody ecstasy in that life raft, right? We're going to give them chemicals. And those chemicals, after X amount of time, if they don't completely freak out, um, they're going to be feeling pretty good about the situation. Even though it might be awful, they might have some positive input to provide on what's going on. Let's try another one. Uh, seasickness. I've seen some people on expedition in kayaks, double kayaks out in the middle of the ocean, so ill that they can't lift the paddles up. They just can't get the thing up far enough to put it in the water to pull on it. They're beyond help. But I have found through um, independent research that if you tip their boats upside down and then they're in a, like, from their point of view, life or death thrashing situation in the cold ocean, you know, this is surrounded by lots of experienced people in kayaks who all know how to rescue a kayak and everyone's got life jackets on, all the rest of it. But the sun immersion and having to pull their sprayed axe and come up and alongside the boat, they're not seasick at that point. <laughs> I've asked them and they're not. They're not seasick. They don't, they're very angry, uh, but they're not seasick. Um, just angry mostly. Now, if you leave in the water, they'll get really, really depressed and they can't go on. But if you can get them back in the boat quick enough and you have already prepared a nice hot thermos of coffee for this moment and some biscuits, and um, you can then plug the tunes in as the sugar starts to hit, you can definitely get them sailing again or get them paddling again rather. So look, that's all independent research. And, uh, you know, I won't be able to share my notes with you, but uh, take it from me that... Um, People's chemicals in their brains are something which they they have very little awareness of, like the kind of changing nature of what's going on. We're all subject to that, but it's something to start to recognize that just because that's the way you're feeling about something, that doesn't mean that that's how it is. That's just the set of chemicals that are flowing through you at that moment. And that might be heavily affected by sugar and which part of the sugar curve you're on. It might be very affected by your water intake, your salts, all sorts of things. But certainly there's a, a low end to the spectrum and a high end. And uh, having the ability to recognize which one you're being thrust into by your physiology is a very strong psychological position to be at when you're in a life and death situation at sea. Being able to step back and kind of observe yourself, recognize your changing chemicals, recognize that it's not necessarily the existential threat that it might otherwise be, start to have some practices to, to, to draw on to uh, further strengthen your resolve these things will become very, very essential uh, if you're in the middle of the night out on a boat and the rest of the time just a kind of kooky podcast content, you know, <laughs> in the middle of the night. Um, funny, though, how it's in the RYA Survival Handbook as well. OK, so by analysing survivors, they have identified all share certain traits. Uh -huh. The following factors have been found to be common. Adaptability able to accept the situation and quickly create a strategy for survival. Belief that they will survive and that failure to do so isn't an option. Optimism. Everything will turn out okay so long as they keep going one day at a time. 
always counting their blessings rather than grieving their losses. Resilience, ability to accept hardship and willing to eat whatever they could trap and came their way. Tenacity, an ability to persevere and be determined to hold on for just a bit longer. Purpose, a reason to live such as the thought of loved ones ashore waiting for them, not wanting to let them down or cause them heartache by their demise, or a determination to accomplish an objective. Knowledge, training and preparation had looked at the potential hazards and had thought through what they would need to do. Resourceful, the ability to improvise to make the best of what they had available. Good Lord. Well, this is going to keep me in business for years to come. I could just, I just can tell what I'm going to do. I'm just going to, just going to rip this page. I didn't actually do it. I'm just going to rip this page out of this book. And uh, this is going to be my entire business model uh, forever. Adaptability, belief, optimism, resilience, tenacity, purpose, knowledge, and resourceful. Well, this is going to be a really hard acronym to build for my PowerPoint presentation. Look, the, the point is this stuff doesn't get practiced nearly enough as it should be in the modern world. And I wonder if it's the underlying reason why people feel sort of like, I know, divested of some part of themselves, that they're just forever searching for like a, a rite of passage that, uh, that, that gives them the pass on whether they're a, a full human being or not. They don't have to do things that require belief and optimism and, and know how to uh, engender those states of mind when it would be very easy to go the other way. There's not many things on a day-to-day -day basis that require tenacity, purpose, knowledge and resourcefulness to get through, you know, scrolling Twitter at three o'clock in the morning. Oh, I'm showing my age there. Scrolling X at three o'clock in the morning uh, does not move the needle very far and doesn't require very much from me. In terms of doing things that press myself, in my life, probably sailing is the thing that presses me the most. And at the moment, I've been doing less of that. So I'm further away from, you know, my optimal than I have been before. But for most people, their everyday lives do not involve really any of the things that are going on here, unless you're talking about in their social interactions. The The reality of being plunged into a situation where it's you and the, the edge of existence and these things are going to be required to get through I think leaves a lot of people wanting. You can say, I am adaptable, to which the answer is, show me 10 experiences that in the last 10 months where you've shown adaptability. If you say, you know, I can believe, like show me 10 opportunities in the last 10 months where you have believed in something or been optimistic or been resilient or had tenacity, like people are not doing this stuff even on a monthly basis. And so the con is revealed because then suddenly we realize that when it comes to the very edge of existence, if these are the things that are required, if our impossible acronym here is the things that are required to survive as opposed to die as a victim of circumstance, well, there's no experience whatsoever of doing this stuff. It's extremely unlikely that someone's just going to suddenly pull this out their ass and know how to like pull it all together. You'd have to be a really charismatic individual to just have those things on tap. Now, they do exist. They are people that become leaders. And you can look back even to the Bible with the charismatic judges. Literally, they are people whose charisma um, pushed them into a situation in their society where they were looked to as leaders. But that is, a, again, a fast disappearing trait, something indeed which Outbound was uh, committed to developing in people, good leadership, but most folks don't don't have any experience of this stuff at all. Okay, let's turn the page here and see what else we've got to learn. Learning from others, it says we can learn 
Much from looking at how others survived. For further research, check out the stories of the following survivors. And it then goes on to list some of the, the really famous ones. Poon Lim, who survived alone on a wooden raft for 133 days. Uh, Steve Callahan survived alone in a life raft for 76 days. Dougal and Lynn Robertson, with their three children, and Robin Williams, that must have been fun, survived for 38 days in their dinghy and life raft in 1972, narrowly avoided dying of laughing, having Robin Williams with them. Morris and Marilyn Bailey, 117 days in a life raft. Deborah Scaling Kylie and Brad Kavanagh survived five, five days in an inflatable dinghy in October 1982. Okay, it goes on for pages and pages, but I have got a better idea. You go over to the Mariners Library podcast. This is literally exactly why I started the podcast, and that was like 170 odd episodes ago. Um, it's me reading these books, which are long forgotten things, often over 100 years old, um, and they all have lessons to be learned. And it's not just about the technicality of what they do. It's about them dealing with terrible situations. And look, here's the deal. Go and listen to episode one of the Mariner's Library. It's a story called... Um, uh, Desperate Voyage, Desperate Voyage, there you go, by John Caldwell. And uh, you would not believe the story that that guy has to tell. The, the middle section of it where he is like adrift, dismasted, in the Pacific, using a scratched chart on the floorboards of the boat whilst eating shoes and brill cream, that bit, that's an education in uh, tenacity and uh, the will to survive. Um, that guy's story is utterly amazing. And each of the books thereafter is picked because it has something in it, which I think is uh, beneficial to develop the, that kind of tougher mindset, that, that deeper understanding of, of who you are and who are the people around you. Um, that comes from learning from others. So I'm just going to kind of flick right on past these two pages because we've got that covered. Oh, lucky you. It's only two more pages. <laughs> they actually didn't have uh, much to say about um, Find the Will to Survive. I guess it's an English book. So they're just like, well, better find that will and then you'll be able to survive. Um, this page, it says when disaster strikes based on the fight, flight or freeze principle, crew will probably react in one of three ways when a yacht founders. Oh, OK. Some actual facts. 10 to 20% will remain calm and be aware of the situation and will respond appropriately. Okay. 75% will be stunned and bewildered. Okay. They will be unable to judge what to do for the best and be unable to concentrate on a task. Okay. 10 to 15% will react inappropriately and may not realize the seriousness of their predicament. They may scream, weep, or be unable to move. Hmm. Okay, applied to a crew of six, these figures suggest that there will be <laughs> one person who is able to react effectively, four who will need goading to undertake tasks, and one who may completely lose their fudging minds. That's not what it says. It says completely lose touch with reality and could endanger themselves or their colleagues. Well, okay, look, I'm going to finish these last couple lines and then I'm like just welling over with things to say about this. A good leader who may or may not be the skipper, good point, will stay positive, prevent uh, recriminations, take stock of the situation and organize and allocate tasks to the survivors. Good planning and preparation, training and knowledge of what to expect will increase the number of crew who react appropriately. Okay, what do we know here? Um... I have told the story before of being on the clipper boat and being halfway down the Atlantic. We crossed from Europe to Brazil and then we turned around in Brazil 
and headed for South Africa. So on the second leg across, leg across the Atlantic, doing a big kind of V backwards and forwards across the Atlantic, which is kind of like how you get down the Atlantic, avoiding the high pressure zones in St. Helena and uh, the Azores. And um, the second leg was had a very different personality to it. We're down through the equator now. We're below the intertropical convergence zone um, and we're crossing the South Atlantic on our way to, uh, on our way down to a point halfway down South America. So we're kind of going dead south and then we're going to start cutting more to the southeast and then finally east, um, which is as we round the St. Helena High and head into Cape Town. So you can't go straight across from Brazil to South Africa. You kind of do a big L shape uh, down and around the St. Helena High. So going down there, the weather on the first leg had been like really nice. You know what you'd expect Canaries and uh, transatlantic down to Brazil Difficult in the um, in the doldrums, but um, no heavy weather, really. Uh, we'd trained in heavy weather, so the crew themselves had been in heavy weather, but they'd had a lot of heavy weather trailing in the UK and Europe, and then they'd had a very easy Atlantic crossing. Half of them had gotten off because they were just on for one or two legs of the race, um, but half of the crew on my boat were around the Wilders, and the experience then of setting off from uh, from Brazil, from, um, <clears throat> from Rio... Um, I would say my crew were excellent. So if anyway, I'm not in any way casting aspersions on them, but they what they did as a um, uh, a, demonstra a demonstration, a demonstrative group of people for the thing that we're talking about is that they started to get very relaxed on deck, too relaxed on deck, which comes also from the Dunning-Kruger curve because they're climbing Mount Stupid. They're just getting... You know, that's what it's called. I'm not again referring to my crew, but that first bit where you've got loads and loads of enthusiasm and loads and loads of developing confidence. You crest Mount Stupid when something goes wrong and then you go back down onto the other side of the curve where you again start learning again, but from a much more kind of humble and uh, less confident position where you actually learn true professionalism. My crew were like cresting the top of Mount Stupid and uh, the the waves were a lot steeper. The sea had gone from like aquamarine blue and sparkling sunshine to like brown. I remember the sea being very brown, um, totally overcast. And we were doing a lot of surfing in uh, in pretty big waves. It's always a pretty big wave if you're surfing it in a 70 foot yacht. But there were, you know, surfs that were taking us up like 17, 18, 19 knots and, and lasting for 10, 15, 20 seconds, 10 or 15 seconds. Um, and then the next one, the next one, someone might surf, you know, 25 times in their half hour helming. Uh, watch so it's pretty big conditions blowing blowing 25 30 probably 15 20 on deck so still got quite a lot of sail up and um people were moving around on, on in a way on the deck um which they were getting like slower about clipping on um they were doing short nips from here to there without clipping on um everyone's still got life jackets on the entire time um but i started to realize like hmm, something's not right here like i don't like this i'm telling people clip on clip on clip on all the time not because in any way I was a brilliant skipper, because I was absolutely petrified of losing any of them. Um, so what I concocted to do that night uh, was to um, do a, a demonstration, a man overboard demonstration, a man overboard practice, which had the other half of the training. Not the half where you're on deck and you're pointing at the thing and someone pretends to go to below to do the VHF and all that stuff. Um, no, I mean like the bit, like what it feels like. So we did it in the middle of the night and a couple of the guys on the one watch I was running, uh, there was like 21 people on the boat. So pretty much divided into three watches. And the seven guys that were on my group, seven people that were on my group, um, two of them were 
I think ex-military. I know certainly one of them was. Um, but they whole group, when I started expressing this idea, said that they indeed wanted to help their crewmates, which is what they were doing, and that they would uh, agree to help out this piece of training. And they all took different roles. Obviously, a couple of them are still on deck, like sailing the giant boat through the night <laughs> you know, as fast a speed as they could go. Um, and uh, the others then, one went, uh, we had been charging, we had been charging the batteries from the main engine because there was something wrong with the generator. Um, so it wasn't unusual for us to have the engine running at night uh, when people are off watch. So imagine the entire center of the boat is empty. The, the galley and the heads and the nav station is empty apart from me at the nav station. And then uh, the mess square opposite and the other heads all completely empty. One cabin at the back of the boat has got two watch leaders in it. And the entire rest of the crew are forward of the mast in the, the forepeak where they all, all slept, right? The other, like, what would be that, uh, other 12 people that are up sleeping up forwards. So everything's all red lit throughout the, the boat. We're plunging through the night, through the waves. The engine's running because it's charging, if anybody cared to give it a second think. And then what I get is I get uh, one person in the nav station on the VHF calling Mayday, 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 and doing full VHF. Meanwhile, up on deck, someone's got the neutral button pressed in on the uh, the gear stick, and uh, they're revving the engine, you know, like in kind of like we're doing something with the engine kind of revs. Not crazy, but like enough, like it's maneuvering. And then I get the, uh, the other military guy, so I think it was Chris, um, he went in and gave them a uh, wake up, wake up, wake up, uh, man overboard, man overboard, man overboard, right? So you are fast asleep in the middle of the night in your little cotton onesie under your duvet in the front of your clipper boat with the red lights on and everything else quiet apart from the engine running suddenly the engine's going crazy and there's somebody on the vhf and there's someone shouting man overboard man overboard and on deck i'm sure we took a couple waves on the side just to add to the pandemonium so we had a little opportunity then to see what was going to happen next and i've talked about this before but it's useful so i talk about it again we got three distinct groups we got the people that came first were the heroes the heroes are very useful. The heroes can be good in some kinds of situations, um, particularly if they're trained. If they're very trained and they can be there, you can get, you know, a, a rack full of sleepy pro sailors on deck in their boxer shorts, can put a kite down, jibe the boat and trim onto the new uh, heading and they're not going to go over the side of the boat and they're not going to like get their fingers caught in things and they can find everything in the dark because they're trained. But this is just people who like, had been dropped into offshore sailing. So we're getting a, more an idea of like who they are in personality rather than training levels. So he, the heroes come first and they're coming up in boxer shorts and half their clothing and they haven't got head torch and it's pretty cold. Like we're down into the South Atlantic. We're you know, halfway down South America here. Waves every which way, wind every which way. Um, not safe for them to be on deck. But I've got the remaining people of my little watch up on deck to like corral them in the cockpit and they've got life jackets already ready to give to them because... Of that previous research I did when I worked for Outward Bound. I thought something like this might happen. So the next uh, group that came up on deck, like there's all sorts of commotion going on at the bottom of the companion where it's not just like it's three phases, but there's heroes coming up, then there's heroes going like, actually, I'm going to go put a coat on. Like, okay, cool. And then a little bit later, some more heroes come back and then some thinkers turn up. And thinkers are the people who woke up, recognized the situation, got dressed and got to the stove and put the kettle on or went and got the boat hook or went and got the um, sleeping bags out for a casualty or went and got the medical kit or whatever it is that they did 
when they come on deck, they've got either their piece of equipment with them or they're ready to sit where they need to be. They're clipped on. They've got their head torches ready to go, but they're not on. They've got their boots done up like here we are. Now we have arrived. We are suited, booted and ready to party. Um, at, by the end of the uh, thinkers coming on deck, we're like, hey, this is just, a, you know, during the thinkers coming on deck or always through, we're telling people like this is just an exercise. But by the end of the thinkers coming up on deck is like, OK, we're not even going to let people back up on deck now. This is all over. Let's talk it through. Let's debrief it. And I went down and I faced a pretty serious panel of my peers because that crew were not very happy about this thing like being done to them in the middle of the night. They were not happy with me. They were very emotional um, as they had every right to be because uh, they'd been thrust into a, a, an awareness of, um, you know, one of it would be one of them over the side, right? It's one of their friends, one of their crewmates is over the side if this is what's happening. This is a reality. This is, this is... This is the real thing. It's happening, right? <clears throat> and they didn't know that for X amount of minutes, uh, depending on when they finally got up on deck. The next morning, um, one of the other boats lost somebody over the side of the boat. And that person was recovered. And you can see it online if you look up Arthur Overboard Clipper Race. Arthur. Um, he is actually doing everything right. He's filming something that they're doing on deck. And he moves back down the side deck, sits down inside the cockpit unclips his um his lifeline his, you know his uh, tether off the off the jack stay and leans over to put it onto another jack stay and at the exact second that he pushes his head forward towards the center line of the boat with his back towards the uphill side of the boat a wave slams into the side of the boat real tank slapper and he dives essentially off the boat over the angled side deck through the guard wires and out into the Atlantic. Now he was recovered by Piers and uh, the fantastic crew of Holland Humber in about 25 minutes. He suffered no injuries. Uh, it was not in any way a problem. Um, I think there were more people turning up to try and be in the clipper race once they heard about that. It's a weird statistic, but it's true. I think it literally caused a bump in their, uh, their uh, enrollment as people wanted to have the, you know, adrift in the Atlantic experience as well. But, uh, the point being my crew at that point then completely reversed their opinion of what I'd like done to them. Cause I was still in the doghouse by nine or 10 the next morning. And then we get this, we get this news that this is what's happened. And then slowly the kind of the word spread that maybe something good had happened. And I don't really know exactly what their uh, final thoughts on that were, but the, my overwhelming impression that I got at the time is that they realized that I'd kind of called it correctly I don't think that Arthur was doing anything that really meant that he deserved to go into the Atlantic. But the fact was that it was um, situation had changed and uh, I was able to see a little bit further around the curve. And uh, in doing so, teach the crew a lesson about clipping on and being cautious on board the boat. But it gave me this this new understanding and this reevaluation of like these groups of people that turn up. Yes, some other heroes they'll turn up and they'll do whatever they can i think in this book here um he's talking about like 10 to 20 percent will remain calm and be aware of the situation will respond appropriately they're my thinkers 75 percent will be stunned and bewildered and they will be unable to judge what to do for the best and be unable to concentrate on a task for me that's actually the heroes so i guess maybe he's right i'd say I go the other way. I'd say 50% would be stunned, bewildered and jump in without thinking. 30% will remain calm and be aware of the situation. And 20%, Jesus, the maths, 20% will 
have an inappropriate exp- uh, inappropriate response okay so let me just yeah let me unpack that inappropriate response <clears throat> I'd, I'd widen the the percentage of people that you could say are having an inappropriate response because that also includes things like um people start stealing have you have you heard about this like they design office towers around uh the principles of how people be able to escape in the event of an emergency and they have computer programs which will map how each individual will need to move around to complete their little algorithm the little computer version of a person so if you say an office block can have 50,000 people in it a large proportion of them on upon hearing the fire alarm will make their way to the nearest stairwell and go down and take off their high heels whatever it is they have to do you know and be fine but some people will like start going around everyone's bags and stealing and some people will go to the roof and some people will go to the toilets and have a cigarette and there's like these known versions of how people are going to be um, and then they incorporate that so that they can get as many people as possible out of the building you know in the event of this emergency on board the boat at sea some people will start I had a girl who was on a boat that I was on. Uh, oh, I was a skipper of coming up from Antigua to um, Bermuda, I guess it was. And we were going through squalls. And although she had some experience as a solo sailor, it was like on 30 foot boat, non-commercial, not doing anything like this. And she, by her own admission, had just kind of made it happen without saying in any way that she'd excelled or failed at it. But she kind of made it happen in the middle of a squall on board our boat, which is like a Volvo 60 with a full crew. She starts like calling orders as to what should happen next. Very, very concerned that I am not dealing with it appropriate and that this squall is going to like knock the boat completely flat and dismasters and all the rest of it, which was highly inappropriate and extraordinarily unlikely. As we had a 7,800 kilo keel and uh, more than enough writing moment to stand up to anything that's going to happen like just slightly north of the Caribbean on a almost still night. You know, it's just a little bit of. Uh, thermal from the different water volumes at different temperatures but she her response was completely inappropriate i've had people that are like trying i had on two separate occasions on two open boat expeditions in asia i had people who were trying to crawl off the side of the boat i looked down the boat in whatever the situation was and you see people like being sick and their friends are holding on to their life jackets and you see people falling and people are you know holding on to them so there's all sorts of ways that little tableaus of people that may be in front of you so I look down the boat on this one occasion and I see someone's being sick it appears over the side and someone's trying to hold on to their life jacket so they don't fall over the side and then as I watch the tableau morphs and like the person like what is going on like and I realize the person's trying to crawl off the side of the boat open these over these wide open side decks at this uh, open catch had and trying to crawl off the boat into the ocean uh, and that th- it was them that was doing all the screaming and crying that I could also hear which had got me to turn around and look down the boat and that the person, she basically lost her, lost her marbles in, in a small squall in a narrow-ish channel in a like 35-foot catch, which had never gone over five knots in its life. Um, she She's losing her, her mind, which is fine. She has every right to do that, no problem at all. But um, probably best not to try and climb off the side of the boat because it's only going to make things worse. So someone was holding on to her, holding her in. So again, an inappropriate uh, response. So I'd say, yeah. Like 50% of people will be stunned, bewildered, and either very enthusiastic to help. And, and like the, 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 the kind of redneck running in. The redneck, what's that? There's a, there is a yacht club in uh, Indian Point in Nova Scotia, near to where I used to live. And I think it's called the 
Redneck Trailer Trash Yacht Club. I think that's right. <laughs> there's nothing out there. There's nothing out there at all. There's 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 certainly no water access or pier or jetty or any administrative structure. Um, but the yeah the Redneck Trailer Trash Yacht Club is uh, out in the middle of nowhere, and their members obviously will hold my beer, run in, and uh, be involved in uh, anything that they can get their hands into. As you could expect, quite a lot of your crew to do. Think of you know a kite starts to get wrapped around the forestay on a weekend fun race boat, and uh, the kites now. Uh, you know, around the fourth day, the halyards being eased the sheets. Now imagine the rest of the situation. And there's a load of guys at the back shouting and there's a load of guys running to the front to try and get hold of the sail, even though they may have no idea of how to recover it from the water or what the process is and they're not accepting any leadership. Or So they're the 50%. And then 30% will be like smart thinking. They're the people around the pit, you know, working the piano on the boat, trimming on the winches maybe. And then you've got like the the the... 20% at the back, probably behind the traveller, who will have some m massively inappropriate <laughs> response to the situation. That's how you divide up a boat. 50% of the fools are on the foredeck, 30% are geniuses in the middle of the boat, 20% at the back. Could be brilliant, could be awful. But in a tricky situation, knowing who those folks are on your boat is very, very important. And one thing I would add is that you don't necessarily know who these different characters are just by like reading the book from its cover. I can remember doing an expedition with um, young teenagers in Hong Kong and there was two girls. They were the, like the archetypal just, oh, oh my God, what's going on? Like kind of like Miss California 50210 type bimbet, right? It was so frustrating just even being on expedition with them when there was a possibility that some of the rest of their classmates could get something from it. And then these two are just reducing it to like a, an, an episode of uh, insert name of your favorite soap opera. Right. But but one night when we were doing uh, an overnight hike, one of the other team members, a girl, twisted her ankle and these two girls, the two aforementioned um, airheads, turned into the most solid team members you could possibly imagine. All of that got switched off. They had the boys organised carrying all the bags. They had the girls organised carrying her stuff. They decided where the next campsite was going to be. They got the tea going. They got the everything going. They made a bed for her. They did the whole nine yards. And I realised that I didn't know anything about teamwork if I was going to start to just guess like who people might be like, you know, friends who get super drunk and get either really quiet or really impassioned or really <clears throat> just hard to deal with social hand grenades. You don't know that till they're drunk. You don't know who someone's going to be on a boat until you've been on a boat with them and you don't know who they're going to be until they're in a real tight fix. I have got some amazing images in my mind of some of the most unlikely people showing the most extraordinary uh, tenacity and, and bravery. I think of one woman, Barbara, who was on my clipper boat. It's all about clipper today. Um, we were coming out of Qingdao and uh, let me see. We came out of Qingdao and it was really rough right in front of the city. And this city is kind of like, it's kind of like how you think of Miami. It's like beach with city directly behind and a very straight piece of coast. So we're going up and down in front of the city and uh, we're getting ready for the start of this race from Qingdao, and that's in northeastern China, to San Francisco. 
and um, I realise that I think there's a halyard has been let go and it's gone up the rig. We're probably taking down the flags. If I'm thinking about the situation, we're probably taking down all the battle flags at the front. One of the halyards got out of hand and went to the top of the rig. But it was rough, hey? And we didn't have any sails up. And so uh, I looked at the normal kind of contenders, like my 50 percenters, um, like, OK, which one of you turkeys is going to go up there? Because right? <laughs> it's uh, like a 90 foot mast. And they're all kind of like looking at each other and each other's shoes and all the rest of it. And then Barbara, who was a primary school teacher from the UK, um, she's like, I'll go. And, uh, you know, by that point, having sailed halfway around the world, I wasn't in any way surprised to find that Barbara would be the one setting out on that kind of expedition. She was, and I hope still is, absolutely solid uh, in her personality. She's like the marshmallow with a diamond inside. And uh, she went up there and she got thrashed. This is not like a Disney story where she went up and it was like all her dreams came true. She got thrashed, man. And we did everything we possibly could to stabilize her. But um, she didn't necessarily have the koala bear skills to like grip the mast in the way you might because she could only go at the speed that they could crank her up the mast, right? Um, and it should take a little bit of time. It's quite physical activity. So no, she got she got the full show. And when she came down, she's still smiling. Absolutely brilliant. Seeing Barbara go through a number of... She could also light a cigarette in literally any conditions that are possible on this planet. Um, you could be on deck with like 75 knots on the other side of the goggles. And there's Barbara just <laughs> getting a dart lit at the top of the companionway. Bless Oh, I hope she's well. Um, well, the point being that, um, yeah, you don't know who your crew are unless you've sailed with your crew. It's good to know numbers on like when disaster strikes. So he's saying 10 to 20 percent will remain calm and be aware of the situation. 75 percent will be stunned and bewildered. They'll be unable to judge what to do, which also includes blundering into things because they've got that kind of often male energy which is just like hey i'll give it a go you suddenly become like russian businessman mode you're just like i know everything i can do this um and then it says here 10 to 15 percent will react inappropriately and may not realize the seriousness of their predicament they may scream weep or be unable to move so i'm saying 20 percent for that lot but include you know may start trying to take over or start having like some meltdown about something else um or being really mean is the other one just getting really mean really nasty just the stress gets to them um, and I think 50% in the middle will kind of just, they'll, they'll be like oxen. It's not that they're like stunned and bewildered. It's just they got the, they become oxen. They'll just do whatever it is that you want them to do. As a note in here, you know, if you're trying to do that in those situations, be aware that people literally can't process. We did a, a podcast a while back about shouting. And one of the things that came out of that is that there are chemicals released in your brain, um, which means that you literally can't interpret language as well as you might do on a normal day um, if you're being shouted at when people in very it's because it makes you stressed the shouting makes you stressed and the same stressed chemicals are in your body when you're in a life or death situation and so people can't necessarily comprehend instructions and what you have to do as a leader is you keep repeating them as clearly as you can as non-sarcastically as non-angrily and as uh, uh, positively uh, as you can and you just keep accenting different parts of it particularly like nouns and verbs right she so might be saying barry get get the rope on the winch barry get the rope on the winch barry get the rope on the winch barry barry get the rope on the winch just you just keep doing that you might do it like 10 or 15 times but in the end barry will realize to get the rope on the winch and you may find that he clicks into a different mode of operation where he's then able to accept future instructions a lot more easily than this first one. It's during this 
initial phase of the emergency where something has to happen, where oftentimes people just completely freeze up. So very important to learn people's names on the boat. Um, the last section here, dealing with survival. It says it's easy when a life-changing event takes place during a leisure activity for it not to be taken seriously. For example, the bravado of being in a race crew can make it difficult to show emotions or stress as you may be concerned that they will be perceived as weakness or fragility. But being involved in an incident at sea can be a terrifying event. Surviving shipwreck, losing a limb or suffering a severe injury or witnessing such injury, nearly drowning or the loss of a friend or colleague overboard is a traumatic experience. And I think the author here makes a very good point that, uh, you know, the bravado uh, of being on something like a race crew can make people ignore very key elements of their emotional experience, their physical experience, and the edge to which they're being pushed by both. You know, just doing things like the Caribbean 600 race down in and amongst the islands of the Caribbean, the temperature did not go below 18 Celsius, did not go above 35 Celsius. Um, at no point was anybody like in a, uh, a serious situation yet doing that race on a number of occasions. I've had people afterwards who are literally like traumatized by just the rapidity of things, the uh, insistence that, you know, this has got to happen right now at three o'clock in the morning. Um, the fact that it doesn't end the next day or the next day or maybe even the next day that just goes on and on and then the food's not what they're expecting and they don't want to go to the toilet and all of this stuff starts to build up and people will hold it in, hold in their reaction to it. And so it's absolutely key for a good skipper to be making the rounds of the crew, making sure that in the last, you know, two hours you've spoken to everybody, um, even if it's just a, a look in their eyes and a word and a, and, a, and a chuck on the shoulder, whatever it is, but something that's going to add to the positivity uh, for them so that they can feel that they can communicate with you, um, that your job is to stay in contact with everything that's going on tactically, meteorologically, the engineering of the boat, and also, of course, the machinery of the crew. And uh, if you start to ignore that as a, a captain, you can end up with people on something like a race crew at four o'clock in the morning near hypothermic on the side of the boat, having not eaten, not gone to the toilet, feeling sick, and really be at the at the point where... It, this better be bloody important if uh, if they're going to be pushed any further than this, like life or death important. There's no gold or silver cup that's worth pushing people that far. It uh, it You misunderstand what's going on if you as the skipper are pushing people like that. It's just that a lot of skippers themselves haven't been in extremely traumatic situations. A lot of skippers haven't been to the edge of what it's possible for them. A lot of skippers weren't ever the crew on the side deck what they are oftentimes is someone who's able to afford the boat or has got access to the boat or is running the company. They've never done the hard yards and it's too easy for them to push other people. Remember that um, the uh, the psychological experiment where they made half the class into the warders and half the class into the prisoners and they had to stop the experiment, right? Because the warders attitude starts getting so harsh so quickly that uh, it's unsafe to continue. This happens when people get thrust into a situation where they're in charge of the boat and they don't know how to back off from being like Captain Blood. And um, it's essential to just, you know, everybody take stock of the situation, understand what's going on. If you're setting off from Sydney to do the Sydney Hobart, you can expect very, very rough winds. But where would you have pulled the plug on something like the 97 Sydney Hobart where things were about to go into a catastrophic situation 
would you have hove to earlier? Would you have run before it? Would you have turned back? Would you? Where's the bit where you would do that? And as the captain, you need to know the answers to that because otherwise you can be responsible for pushing people into a situation where, yeah, injuries may occur, damage may occur, lives may be lost, parts of people may be lost. All that stuff can happen. But also if none of that happens, just people are left with a severely traumatic experience. And unless you are doing it really for something very, very important, you as the captain are left with that uh, on your plate thereafter, you know, that uh, you've driven people into this situation. And uh, unless it really was life or death to pull that spinnaker out from under the boat, unless it was really life or death to put that person up the rig, um, you pushing people to complete tasks on board the boat for which they have no background, no experience, no kind of legacy uh, in their families or anything to prepare them for, um, it may be that... Um, it may be that you push them to something which is going to end up being a, a traumatic experience in their life. So um, typical symptoms, it says following a traumatic event uh, may include flashbacks, nightmares, trouble concentrating, irritability, emotional numbness, forgetfulness, insomnia, anxiety, excessive drinking and inability to think of anything else and guilt. Usually after a short period of time, the symptoms subside and the memories become easier to live with. But if they continue or intensify, or if they are severe, you may be suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. Seek medical advice to prevent the symptoms from getting worse. Look, the thing is, whatever's the trauma that you've experienced, the trauma that's in your life, the trauma that is affecting you, that is trauma. And it might be a lot less than someone else has got in their life, but it's not like it's a, a competition or something. The, the fact of the matter is you are unable to move past a set of memories in your head and they're starting to have a physiological effect on you. So... Let's uh, roll into the summary here. Um, it's a pretty amazing subject, this, and uh, one I think we should come back to because there's a lot to be learned about it. People have survived some incredible things and uh, developing a little bit of toughness, developing some mental and emotional toughness is very, very important for anybody that goes to sea. Um, things can change very quickly. Uh, situations can develop out of uh, all perspective into something which can leave real lasting effects. So. Um, understanding what can happen and what are the stages of a survival situation by wider reading or by doing something like an outward bound course where you can get into a situation with increased perceived danger and lower actual danger to sort of hone your craft. Um, I, I try and get that if you can. Um, don't do it on a boat at sea. Don't deliberately put yourself into very tricky situations and then hope that it's all going to come right because uh, if it doesn't, you'll have gone out to practice something and then end up having the real thing happen to you. The summary says uh, the will to survive should not be underestimated. Live a day at a time. Don't dwell on what went wrong and don't blame others. There's time for that after you reach safety. Use everything you have available. One in six people will react inappropriately in an emergency. Three quarters will be stunned and bewildered. Take stock of your situation and use your resources wisely and get trained so that you know what to expect, how to react and what to do if there's a problem. So this, uh, this is the uh, end of chapter six here. Um, we move on next time to, um, let me turn the page here and see what we're doing next. Oh, abandoning ship. <laughs> joy upon joys. Uh, well, we'll be doing that very shortly as we try and get this book finished up. Um, if you've had your own experience of something at sea where you've had a, a traumatic experience happen, um, I would say 
you know, I'd be interested to share it if there's something can be learnt from it. People always ask me, like the number one question uh, I get whenever I do kind of talks or what have you about sailing is, uh, you know, what's the worst weather you've been through? What's the worst things happened to you? How's the Southern Ocean? No one wants to know about any of the rest of it. They just want to know about everything awful. And of course, we can kind of expect that because it's a very, very strong uh, survival tactic to learn about other people's near-death experiences or terrible things that have happened on board the boat that have caused a lot of damage. It's very understandable that we want to try and get as much information as possible so we can avoid these kind of situations in the future and then add to that our own kind of morbid questioning about what happens next and the the, the nature of uh, dealing with extreme pain and all that kind of stuff. And very quickly, you've got a concoction where the only question that people could think to ask an offshore sailor is, how bad does it get? Um, you know, sharing information can be difficult sometimes. It happens around the Yacht Club bar, but oftentimes it's kind of like twisted into some big story of bravado. Getting down to the, the details of what happened and how to not let it happen again is something that's very key to do. It's, again, absolutely why I read the books in the Mariner's Library. Um, primarily the Mariner's Library, I think in many ways, is me trying to read books that I would hope that my son Isaac um, one day would consume and that there'd be something in each one that he would find, like a tidbit that kind of I've left behind for him, of some element of mental, emotional toughness or fortitude or, or, or caring or, or, or consideration, but that there's something in each one. And as I look literally to my left here now, and there's like hundreds of books of log books of, of boats uh, uh, that have, you know, long since gone. The boats have gone, the people have gone, but the stories remain. And uh, I hope that in that there's something that could be shared. So if you've got something like that's happened to you, I'd be very happy to uh, pass that training on to a wider audience if you'd like to. And of course, the email address is CSM themariner at gmail.com. Okay, well, that's all for this week. Uh, next week, we'll be jumping into a book review of the uh, book I've most recently been reading, which is uh, The Romantic Challenge by Sir Francis Chichester. Lots of interesting stuff in that. We'll be doing another ABC of sailing. I'm accelerating all these little series as I start to realize it's been years since I began them. Let's get them dusted off and finished up. And uh, we can also have a see if we can um, move on to new series. If you've got other things you'd like me to talk about, uh, share information. That email is csmthemariner at gmail.com or of course go over to patreon.com forward slash themariner. Join up there and we can communicate directly and I can help you with anything specific that you're working on or share information you have with a, a wider audience. But until the next time, I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you keep yourself, your crew and your boat safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. Thank you.